what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Glenn, Mm. we have so many new sponsors. It's unbelievable. It's very exciting. Who should we start with? Let's start with the original. The goat. The goat. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Jason Furman. Eins a wiener dog quip. The Eins a wiener. Einswick dog quip. Where the fuck else would you buy your dog training equipment from? In Australia. In Australia. Yes. Yeah, where else would you get it? The goat himself. The goat. Einswick dog quip. Yep. Should we call him the buffhead goat? We could. I mean, why not? Label him up as much as we can. Yeah. If you need any dog training equipment, the only place you should be getting it in Australia is Einswick dog quip. Mm -hmm. But if you're training that dog, you're going to need to keep it healthy. Yes, you are. How on earth would someone go about doing that? The one and only Caninecuticals. What is Caninecuticals, sir? It's a great range of dog supplements. I could probably and proudly say it's close to the best that you can get. It's human-grade supplements. Mm-hmm. I know- So you can have a little taste. You can. You can have a little taste. <laughs> That's not, the best I, thing about I, training I'm not with gonna actually. I'm not going to officially endorse that, just in case someone does and they yeah, have, yeah. A, have a- Yeah. No, but they should be able to because it's human-grade supplements, and knowing my wife and what a perfectionist she is, like Narelle would literally breathe into one of those little bags if, and have a hissy fit if it wasn't close to the best that she could possibly put out. Okay. You know when people hyperventilate and mm-hmm, they've got to hold a mm-hmm, paper bag mm-hmm, to their mouth? Mm-hmm. She would do that. Okay. So I know it's great product. It's the word canine, not K and nine. Okay. Yep. Caninecuticals.com.au. You know, one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen mm. was many years ago mm. when we were at the ICP conference In and Colorado. horny George Kittredge yes. showed us his prototype. He did. He did. Dog box on the back of his motorbike. He did. And his motorbike got stolen the next day. Yes, it did. Yeah, that's right. It did. (laughs) Fucking hell. Yeah. Anyway, he perfected that fucking thing. Yeah. And it's now called the Rowdy Hound brand. And he, look. Listen. He's even got the music. Rowdy Rowdy Hound Hound motorcycle dog kennel for dogs up to 70 pounds. Mm. It actually is cool as shit. So it's like a, a cool dog box that goes on the back of your motorbike. Seals up if you need to keep the dog in there. Has a little pop open so his little cool head can stick out. It's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And we knew about it since concept. Like he told yeah. us about it on the way when he picked us up from the airport and yep. drove us out to the conference. Yep. Told Talked us all it about it and he brought it to fruition. It's actually really cool to see that he got that to market. I love that kid. He's a good guy. Here it is. You yep. can buy it. Yep. So if you have a motorcycle and a dog, Glenn. Rowdy Hound. <laughs> Dog you see one, I can imagine you with Randy in it on the back. Oh, of imagine that. <laughs> I'd go to corner and Randy would jump at something and flip me off my bike. Yeah. What I think people should do is get themselves one of those if they're mm. in America, if you ride motorcycles. Yeah. And then just drive on up to Canada. Yes. To? Dan Croft Canine. Absolutely. The best in the biz. Yeah. They're doing puppy training, dog training, merch. They've got equipment. And- if you have a look at their social media, they're absolutely social media whizzers. Are they? Yeah, on Instagram. The they've best. got it. They've got they're absolutely fantastic on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Dancroft Canine Toronto. 
The best. The best. The best in the biz. So that's it, guys. Four sponsors. We've got the Goat, Canine Suticals, the Cool Dog Box, the Rowdy Hound Dog Box, and Dancroft Canine. Thank you very much, guys, for sponsoring Mm. the show. And if you appreciate the show, appreciate those guys. Yeah, don't skip the ads, guys. Listen to them every single time. Yeah. Like and subscribe. Yeah. Check them out. Yeah. Help them out, small businesses, and we should support our own anyway. Yeah, and we're going to record this ad every week. Every and there'll week. be very minor differences, and it's up to you to tell us what those differences are. It's a are. test. There's a test at the end of it. There's a test at the end of the show. Make sure you study. <laughs>
learning theory as a bare minimum, if I'm going to sign people off to become a dog trainer, I like them to have a sound knowledge of learning theory. But again, I'm not going to monopolize. Joe, I'd like to hand it over to you to hear your thoughts on this. I think it's a really, really difficult question to answer. And actually, a little story is two years ago, maybe, maybe three, I was asked to join a little panel of dog trainers in the government in the UK and go up to uh, the government buildings and give my opinion on it alongside like Victoria Stilwell and a bunch of others about regulation. And they asked us two main questions. One of the questions was, should there be a minimum benchmark? And the other one was, should there be one body that decides that minimum benchmark? And it was incredibly controversial. And I'm a person of study. I can't answer a question without kind of going and having a look at maybe what other industries have done, as well as like what the possible solution is rather than just going, yes, we should do that. And in that kind of exploration, I realized just how complex that question is. Because first off, you have to go, well, is there a problem? Like if we don't have a minimum benchmark, does that cause us any problems? And one of the first kind of big things I stumbled upon was we don't really know because nowhere in the world actually collects any data on it. Hmm. Like we don't have any, we don't know how many dog trainers there are. Like how many dog trainers are there in, in, in Australia that take fees for being a dog trainer? No, no one, one knows. knows. No, no Nobody one cares knows. enough to how know. How many different types are there? Are there any complaints? Do certain types of dog trainer cause more complaints to owners than other types of dog trainer? We don't know any of that stuff. And so it's really difficult to know. What we do know is that dog bites all over the world are on their rise And what we do know is that relinquishments of dogs is on the rise. And we know that pet ownership is on the rise. Mm -hmm. So for me, that makes me go, "Hmm, maybe something has to change in order to either maintain that number or reduce it. And dog training seems to be the, the logical answer to a lot of that. In the UK at the moment, there are specific membership bodies that are really, really fighting to become the one regulator. Mm. I don't know whether or not you have that where you guys are as well. In Australia, not so much. It's bubbling away under the surface a little bit, but there's no big overt action to be the governing body, the regulator, because we do have a government certified course, the one that Glenn is talking about that he instructs on. Like there is, now you don't have to have it. It's not like it's a requirement to take money to train a dog or anything like that, but there is one. There are several. Yeah. There is a couple and there is now a new Cert 4 that's hit the market as well. But the one that Pat's talking about that I'm teaching on has been around for a while. It is it is recognised. It is certifiable. You do get a certificate, like a, an Australian government recognised course that you've completed at the requirements for the Cert 3. Now there is a, a Cert 4 that's just hit the market. And I believe at some stage there is going to be a diploma level coming out. So mm. they're there and they're available. Do you see a difference? And in Australia, is there a respected difference between someone who gets their Cert 3 as a trainer and somebody who wants to be a behaviourist? And are they expected to do, you know, if you're working with abnormal behaviour or with particularly intense behaviour or whatever, you know, behaviourist stuff, is there considered a a difference? So it's interesting, right? So there's veterinary behavioralists Mm -hmm. and that's really it. There's lots of people who call themselves behavioralists and they have no qualifications. Now, some of them might have done many and various courses, and some of them watch the Cesar Milan box set. <laughs> and, and so that word is not regulated, so anyone can use it. And, and very often people, you know, in my experience, and I want to choose my words carefully, 
that is usually a giveaway that someone is actually not very well educated when they call themselves a behavioralist in Australia. That's not always the case, but if you call yourself a behavioralist and you don't have letters after your name, then chances are you probably are not very well educated or part of the community. Like you're probably not in one of the many and various professional organizations because most people tend not to call themselves, they call themselves trainers. It's marketing. Yeah, it is. It's it's marketing. It's and marketing. It's like people who call themselves a dog whisperer. I have my own thoughts and feelings about people who call themselves a dog whisperer. There's various other titles that are self-proclaimed that people give themselves as well that I hear it, it automatically, you know, it's like when you suck a lemon, you pull the same sort of face. Those sort of feelings and emotions are invoked every time I hear these self-proclaimed titles being given. It really comes down to competitiveness and marketing. And I think to a degree of what Pat said, it's a lack of education sometimes and it just sounds good and it rolls off the tongue. And people say, well, the guy next door calls himself one. So if you can't beat him, join him. I'm going to call myself one too. Yeah. And to the people writing my name on the wall in lipstick and getting ready to fucking come get me because they call themselves a behavioralist. Like (laughs) I'm talking generally, there are some fantastic dog trainers and their business has behavioralists written in it and you know, no big deal, whatever. But for the most part, that's kind of the case. Yeah. The way that I see it is that There's that problem. So there's two extreme problems with the current state of affairs, which is that you've got problem number one, which is that Jane down the road has um, a Cocker Spaniel that's really well behaved and she looks at everybody else's dogs and she says, well, they're really badly behaved and therefore I can clearly train a dog and they can't and I'm going to start. And the first person that comes to her to ask for help is someone whose dog's biting people. And she says, right, well, I'm a behaviorist. I can do this. So someone who has nothing, there's nothing that stops that from happening. And there's nothing that stops any old person saying I'm going to work with really extreme behavior because I fancy that because I grew up watching Crocodile Dundee and I like the idea that I can Mm -hmm. tame the wild beasts that are out there. You've then got the problem, which is right on the other end of the spectrum, where you have membership bodies that protect, that try to make working in behavior exclusive Mm -hmm. only to people who have got academic qualifications and don't respect the fact that many people like probably most of the most skilled people I've ever worked with don't come from an academic place. Yeah. Like the vast majority I'd say of people I've worked with who are actually really, really good at behavior modification don't have any qualifications. Mm. Um, And so you've got these two kind of fighting forces. Now these guys are saying the guys who are saying we, you have to have at least degree level education in order to call yourself a behaviorist are saying, because Sue down the road can otherwise call herself a behaviorist. But then you've got people who are not Sue down the road, who are people who have been doing it for a very long time, perhaps, or people who are just just really talented and very skilled and have gone out and got a lot of experience who are saying, well, no, I don't need that degree. In fact, most of the people that I've worked with who have got the letters after the name don't know what the fuck they're doing when the dog actually comes out mm-hmm. and they can't touch the dog. And it, it seems to be these really fighting forces. And for Joe Public, they don't really care about the membership bodies. They don't really care about what certification or accreditations or courses you've done. They just want someone who's skilled and able to do the job. Mm. And it appears almost impossible to know without a personal recommendation who is going to be able to do the job. Mm. That reminds me of a story, Joe Rosie, of a book author who is very well known. I'm not going to name them because they might not want to be named but they wrote three manuals of very well acclaimed and very scientific related data on how to train a dog. 
when they originally wrote the first manual and put it out for peer review at a very well-established university, the dean of the university and the board that was involved in doing reviews on literature came back to the author and said, we're having trouble peer reviewing this because this current data doesn't exist. And this person isn't a scientist themselves. But what they were capable of doing, which a lot of people are capable of doing, which reinforces along the lines of what you're talking about before, even if you don't have the piece of paper with the rubber stamp on it that says you went to our university and attended our lectures and we deem you satisfactory under our regulatory requirements, it doesn't mean that you're incapable of educating yourself, of having access to exactly the same material and knowledge that these people have and not having that piece of A4 paper with the rubber stamp on it. You can be academically brilliant and still not have any desire, want or need or even the availability to attend university and still have the sound knowledge, the academic and the pragmatic requirements to still have the output that that person is capable of doing. So you can have person A who is university graduated and recognised, person B who is not, but still understands exactly what it is and can debate that person and even in some cases surpass them on industry knowledge that they know about and field knowledge that they've practiced in and run rings around that person. The reason I know that is because I've seen people do it before. I've seen people in situations where they don't hold the academic requirements, yet still they could stand in a court of law and argue case in point because they they know it. If the, if the court asks them, sir, are you uh, university experienced? Like, do you hold a degree in this? They would obviously have to answer no, but the court couldn't recognize that they don't know what they're talking about because they do. Or they couldn't recognize that they aren't able to produce the goods because they can. They can pragmatically produce sound work. And even in some cases, as I've said before, they can well and truly surpass the person with the university certificate. When I say this, I don't want people out there who have bachelor's, master's, PhDs to be listening to this and thinking that I'm disrespecting them because I am not. I have nothing but reverence and respect for people who have done that work. Even in the limited work that I've got, I mean, I've got a diploma in small business management. I've got cert fours in training and assessing, which are, they're hard, but there's people who have done extremely hard work in business management. Like I've said, master's degrees, PhDs, all the relevant credibility in, in their field. It's fucking hard. Like it's terribly hard work. Yet I have to say, and to counter this again, and I hope it doesn't sound like I'm contradicting it. But I've also seen people who have a very low ability in schooling. They've probably attended mid-range high school. Yet when you go out and watch that person pragmatically work with horses or dogs or something like that, they are an unregistered scientist in their field. Like they're an expert and people can't even come close to them. They're absolutely brilliant when you see them work. There's no denying it. They can produce the goods time after time after time. Science is observable. And when you can observe somebody doing it, there's the science for you. For sure. And I think that I get a lot of messages almost 
probably weekly from people who have left university who are scared because they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah. And I've been in that. I've been in that chair. Like well, I got a postgraduate, so I did my degree and then I got a postgrad. And then I came out and I thought, right, I can, I can train dogs now. I can do animal behavior. That's what I've learned to do. And then I stepped out into the rescue center that I was working with and went, now what the hell do I do? Yeah. Like, I don't know how to do it. I can tell you the theory behind why the animal is doing it. And I can tell you, all the different things that is going on underneath, but I, I don't really know how to change that. And I'm getting a lot of, it's mainly girls, a lot of girls who are coming to me at the moment and going, I've just finished uni. What do I do now? Because I'm scared because I feel like I've got a set up on my own. I don't have a clue. I don't know where to start. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got people who haven't gone to university and who have instead like shadowed people and done all, kind of gone that route who are really proficient and have got super skills and I kind of feel like on top of that, the industry has started to cash cow on those two groups. Mm. So you've got the groups who are saying, right, you have to have these academic exam based, usually certifications in order to to be in our club. Right. Most of those membership bodies have fingers in the pies of the courses that they say that they have to be able to do. Of course. Of course. And then that you pay a membership and you're part of this exclusive group. Anybody who doesn't have these qualifications shouldn't be calling themselves according to these groups, shouldn't be calling themselves a behaviorist. They are lowly. These are the ones that you, you want to look out for. Now, certainly, again, I'm talking about the UK specifically because it's the industry that I know best. But certainly in the UK, at the moment, the veterinary organizations and the charities are massively supportive of that group of people. Mm. So the charities are saying we will only employ people who have got these certifications and we will only suggest to our people who have taken dogs from us, people who have got this same with the veterinary associations to the point where the ABTC, which is like the major one in the UK is actually trying to pass a veterinary bill whereby behaviorists become paraprofessionals underneath vets and can only get work through vets and vets will only suggest people who have got this level of qualification examination based academic qualification will only refer to those people legally they'll have to only refer to these people it's also worth mentioning because it was something that came up when i went to to parliament that all of those organizations only support normal use so the academics only teach so in all of the universities across the uk i don't know what it's like over where you are they will only support uh, positive reinforcement based training and in fact one student came to me last week and she said, I tried to discuss punishment with my lecturer. And she said, we don't talk about punishment on this course. Yeah. So I do want to talk more about that piece, but something I just want to sort of unpack a little bit about what you just said is I think that a lot of the big issues that we face in our industry is financially driven. Mm. You know, if you get two kids out of school, two 18 year olds, and they both want to be dog trainers and one wants to just go pick up dog shit in a kennel and get their hands on dogs. And the other one wants to go to university seven years later. Like that's probably what you did at uni seven years to get your, yeah, yeah, I did three, four, five, five years, five years. Okay. So five years later, one of them's got hundreds and hundreds of dogs under the belt has been bitten, has probably made a ton of money in that time as well, mm -hmm. but has a lot of experience and, you know, assuming they're similar quality people is very good on the tools. And the other one, five years later, knows a ton and can recite a bunch of cool stuff and can read a paper and probably conduct a study, but is not going to hold a candle to the other in regards to ability to train Pragmatic a dog. side. But mm -hmm. what I'll say to the kid that went to university is, 
when we see a problem with a dog, the person that's had their hands on it is probably going to say, oh, I know how to fix this. It's easy. We do the blah, 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 and it's done. But then when they get asked, is this normal parrot behavior or has this parrot got a neurological problem? The dog trainer person is going to say, well, how the fuck would I know? And the one that went to mm-hmm. university is going to have a skill set to deal with that. And so that's one of the things I think that's interesting is that we talk about behavioralists, but to my knowledge, I don't know anywhere that teaches like dog behaviorism, right? So like where you can go and just learn to be a dog trainer for five years. I don't know of anywhere that does that because it's all animal training stuff, right? And so I feel like there's a lot of information that's kind of wasted, right? So in the same way you that- You can specialize. So I specialized in canine and feline. So you can go, I just want to do like domestic pets or you can say, I just want to do exotics. Okay. Um, so that, that you, you do specify, but it is lecture hall stuff mainly. Of the five years, how much of it is specif- is oh. just pointed at cats and dogs? probably one year for me because I did three years in human psychology first applied psychology. What is your degree, Joe? My degree is in uh, applied psychology uh, with a specialism in zoology. Mm. And then I did a postgraduate in canine and feline behavior. Very cool. So cool. Um, (laughs) But here's the thing. So this is where I'm going with it. It doesn't teach me to train dogs, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. And I I can read the shit out of science papers, papers, as you know, like I'll eat them up for breakfast, no Mm. problems. And I can conduct a study uh, happily tomorrow. Um, And that does help me to some extent in behavior cases. So for example, my friend Corin came to me yesterday and she said, I've got a client with a a flyball client with a dog. It's just had its eye taken out and it's turning the wrong way on the stand now when it's hitting the box um and i said does anything else change and she said yeah they changed the equipment and i was like at the same time so immediately my science brain goes oh two variables simultaneously that's rubbish you need to put one of the variables back and because mm-hmm. that's the only way that you'll be able to test which one it is mm-hmm. someone who's been doing flyball for a really long time or sports training would probably pick that up as well mm-hmm. definitely doing the science stuff does make help you look at like standardization and how you can test behavior for sure but it did not train me how to train dogs at all yeah like i came out i took on my pit bull it was a baptism of fire i had to rip up every book i'd read if he didn't rip them up and rewrite it all in my head because half of what i learned just was not applicable yeah so i do want to get to that but the other part that i wanted to say which is where i was headed before is that the problem we face is that the kid that didn't go to uni is good on the tools he can fucking he can train dogs And he's going to, the market would dictate that he will be busier and he will make more money. But because he didn't pay to the organizations for his education, he's not in the cool guy club. And the problem that I am super worried about in this industry all around the world is that if you're not in the cool guy club, what the cool guy club now is trying to legislate you unable to work. And so it's not because they're any better. In fact, they're often very worse, but they're manipulating the free market by saying you don't have the right quals that we are charging to give to you. Therefore, we will lobby government or we are the government or whatever in order to no longer allow you to work. And the reason they're doing that is not ideologically based a lot of the time. It's because you didn't pay the piper. How dare you? Are you suggesting that elitism exists? Yeah, well, it's not just elitism. (laughs) It's that you didn't pay us the money. You didn't pay the ante, so we're not going to let you play the game with us. But it's a good way to keep people out too. Yeah, and and you can immediately- That's the true no-homers club. That's right. So Mm. even if the skill set were the same, even if they were equally capable, you're now saying to the one guy, well, you can practice and you can't, despite the fact that you're equally capable. But in reality, 
it actually typically goes the other way that the person who has no qualifications is often much better at the work and therefore will get more work because they'll get more referrals. This is at hundred percent. I mean, not a hundred percent, but as close to a referral based business as ever there was. Right. I think dog training yeah. is one of the most referral based businesses and evidence based because look at this dog I trained and people see it. Like people see the average Jono walking down the street with their asshole dog barking, lunging and being a headache. And then they see them a month later and their dog's great. And they say, how did that happen? And they say, I called this guy, right? And that's that's how most dog trainers get work. Mm. Well, that's how a lot of dog trainers get work. However, a lot of dog trainers get work through the vet. Yes. And through the insurance referrals as well. And if the insurance will only, so a lot of the insurance companies now will only go through the ABTC in America, in UK. And there was, if you haven't got an ABTC qualification, we won't pay out the insurance. This was what I was saying in government, which wasn't very popular, mainly because I was standing up there with the people who were running the courses. <laughs> the trouble is, is that they've cash cowed on the, the scientific age that we're living in at the moment, whereby people say, if there's science behind it, it's true. If there's science behind it, it's valid. It's reliable. You've got to be science based. Mm-hmm. And people have shied away from evidence based now and they're saying science based and they're two very different things. And so you've got that cash cow on that side. You've also got the cash cow on this side too, though, because you've also got quite a lot of membership bodies that go, screw them. You can do it in three days. Yeah. You don't need this. Come and do it in three days. Come and do it with us. You don't need any qualifications. Come here. Three days. Give me three days. I'll turn you into a dog trainer. I'll give you a certificate. Now, once I've taught you that the world is flat, I'm going to give you an exam that asks you if the world is flat. Because I've taught you the world is flat, you're going to say, yes, the world is flat. Right. You've passed your exam. Because you passed your exam, you can put more money in my pocket and become part of my membership body. Yeah. So you've got all these fighting groups. Some of them are capitalizing on the fact that this exists and the others are capitalizing on the fact that this exists. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, That's very true. At the end of the day, for me, I always go back to the fact that when I was leaving the army and I decided I wanted to be a dog trainer, there was lots of qualifications I could get. Right. And I thought, which one should I get? Right. There's all these different ones. And I thought, When someone asks me what qualifications do you have and I say none and that results in me not getting the job that I wanted, I will get one of those qualifications. Seven years later, I still have no qualifications because- Like the half, Nando's the same. It's the same. Yeah. And I think I get away with that because I think people assume I was a military working dog handler and they assume that there's some sort of form of qualification for that. And truth is, you know, I train a lot of military working dog handlers. So I get that I'm not the typical use case and I'm not anti people getting qualifications, not for sure. But I think that it can be overstated. And I think that very regularly you're buying into someone's dogma rather than a good education. And that's not always the case because I'm sitting here next to the instructor of a course that I don't think has any dogma. I think that there is, it's just, hey, this is dog training. This is a good minimum standard of things that you should know and away you go into the world. The thing is, for me, if I had to do a course, I would do one of the bullshit ones because that's going to buy me into the club. (laughs) Because you know what you're doing. Yeah, right. So I'm not looking for not learning. Yeah. So for me, at this point, I'm better off buying into one of the bullshit pyramid schemes, right? If I had to get a qualification, which infuriates me Mm -hmm. that that's the truth, that I am better off buying into the nonsense in order to open up more work opportunities if I wanted those opportunities. Well, the NDTF course doesn't, as you said, Pat, it doesn't expose people that you have to be a part of a membership body after that. This goes along the lines of what you were talking about before, Joe Rosie, and Pat, you were touching on it before, 
But it goes along the lines of the best experience is in the field and it's a lot of it. And it's just trial and error. It's making mistakes because they're going to be some of your best teachers. And primarily that's what we focus on in telling people is that the best way to get involved in this and the best way to get truly qualified is get your hands dirty. And that's the only way you're going to get qualified in the dog training market is you have to go out there and train dogs. You can know as much theory as you want. And as you said, you can be an ill-prepared person that comes out of a bubble and a lot of universities, um, my wife is, a, you know, she's been involved in a lot of university work over years. It's a bubble. It protects you. It makes you feel warm and cuddly and you've got a, a team that you can be coddled with. And I, I say that respectfully. I'm not disrespecting people. So if anyone out there is getting upset, I'm not disrespecting you. But it does keep you in a community. But when you leave that community, you're unplugged from the matrix in a way because all of a sudden the world basically says to you, you've got qualifications, but you're not experienced. You don't know what to do. I mean, there's a ton of people who are still flipping burgers who've got some really fancy qualifications because they're still scared to try out and go out there and, and get their hands dirty or they just haven't had a fair start or they haven't met the right person yet who's given them the opportunity to do it. Either way, it's a lot of fear that's held them back from going forward. Where I know some people who I would say a bit of two by four wood is probably more intelligent than them. But the problem is, is they're blissfully ignorant and they're just whittling their way through life and just grabbing dog after dog. But while they're doing that, they are still raising the stakes on them learning more about dog management and handling. And I've met some people that I would be scared to give them a dog personally and wouldn't do it because I'm just nervous about their management skills and them handling dogs. Yet I've seen them years later and that same person has become somewhat competent because they've just done a lot of trial and error. Now, it sucks to be the people and the dogs that went through their error period. I acknowledge that because, again, I wouldn't acknowledge their early work. However, at some stage, they reached a level of competency where it can't be denied anymore because now they've had field experience. That is an anomaly that actually happens. I've seen it happen before. And it's a weird thing because they're people that at the start you would write them off and say, they're not good at this job. I wouldn't endorse them. But at some stage, and I'm not talking about everybody because there are others that exist outside that field as well who they hit rock bottom and then they go and get dynamite to blow the base out of it to keep going. But there are those other ones that they do get experienced and they do become reasonably good. And some of them are actually quite good. They're quite competent. I've definitely seen the same. There's definitely been people that have come on and I've been like, you're, this is dangerous. Me giving you a dog is going to be dangerous. You're going to get bitten. Like you don't have the skills. You don't have the knowledge. You're not able to read this dog. And I've seen them three or four years later, having put some money in, usually put some money into some decent CPD mm. and they've come back and I'm like, Oh, fair fucks. Like this is, this is, you're actually looking all right now. Like your mechanical skills are decent enough that you can handle these situations that you definitely couldn't have done before. So I guess the thing is, is that, as public, well, A, as public, how do you know which to get? Like, how do you know which dog trainer is the right one? Ah, you don't want to do trial and error on your dog. See, that's the thing, is public victims of marketing. That's mm-hmm. where the public are often driven wrong. I mean, there's three people involved in this conversation who have all had people that have been referred to them after their third or fourth person because they've bounced around in life. If we're lucky to actually get them at the tail end of it, 
where a big flashy ad has drawn them in. Mm-hmm. There's an old saying, all that glitters isn't gold, but the problem is, is it glitters and it attracts eyes, you know, and we're attracted to stimuli and people who are clever at marketing may not be great at actually physically training, but they do know how to drag that person in and they've got their first round of money. It might be an okay experience or might be even a bad experience, but they got the money. Some people who are happy with that, they don't have high morals and they don't really care. They got your money. Yeah. They brought you in and really they did what they said that they were going to do. Yeah. And that's the unwitting public. And there's people out there who don't even, they don't know what they don't know. Their first experience sure. with this person is, well, this is dog training. I'm not really happy about it, but this is dog training. They don't know any better. Yeah. They've never been to anyone better. They don't have anything to compare to. So their first experience is, this is it. This is the standard of what you can expect to find out there. There is an image that comes to mind every time I think about this where somebody has got half a perfectly drawn tattoo of a horse and the other half looks like a kid drew it. And that's the comparative image that that pops up in my mind every time I think of these conversations is on one half, you've got somebody who was competent in their job. On the other half, you've got a complete bozo that's just done a terrible job. But how do you know unless you go to either of those artists? Well, you see, I had an idea, which is what I put forward at this thing, which was that you that you know you have like it's a kind of a cross between Uber and TripAdvisor, but it would be like a register that every dog trainer in the world had to go on. So no certification. You don't. I don't know what whether or not there'd be maybe a bare minimum, which is what I was thinking about. Whether or not there'd be a bare minimum and what that bare minimum would be. But you go on when if you're going to charge as a dog trainer, you get a registration number and you you are part of this app or system. And then if you've had a consult with that person, just like on Uber, they it gets sent back and you put in your stars and you say, you know, I had a good ride or I had a shit ride or whatever. But also there's a transparent part whereby you can say I've done this certification and this course. And then as soon as that person says, I know, like I've done a school of canine science course, then we get pinged an email and we go, Oh, did that person do it yet? And then we sign it off. And so you can see all the CPD and all the CPD that you do, you have three areas, you have experience, like the same way in TripAdvisor, you have like price, like how nice it is, all that jazz. You'd have like experience, theory-based knowledge and practical knowledge because uh, I think there's two different things, isn't there? You can learn to do a mechanic and then you can have experience doing that mechanic and they're two kind of separate bits. And then as you go, you would gain your points and therefore it would be completely transparent. Mm. And so if I wanted an agility trainer, I'd be able to go into my trip advisor and type in agility in my area and I'll go, oh, she's got five stars and I can see she's done agility qualifications or she's got to grade five or whatever with her dog rather than going to the friendly agility course over here where she hasn't actually done any agility. She hasn't actually got any agility, but she's just a dog trainer, but she's now, you know, popping dogs over jumps. Mm-hmm. It'd be incredibly transparent and it would give some weighting to all the different various ways into dog training. I like the idea of something like that. It definitely has merit, but it's also open to being corrupted as well. If I went on there and let's say, for example, I was motivated to find a hundred people to put up a nice rating for me and say something nice, automatically I've got this brilliant score for doing nothing. They're the problems. I mean, there are businesses. um, There is a kennel local to us that literally opened, like literally opened, 
and they've got reviews on there that says these people have been the best in the business for five years. Yeah. And they opened two months ago. Well, I mean, we get we get spam with that on the podcast email. We get all those like buy reviews and they're cheap too. Oh, yeah. Like yeah, for a couple buy- of hundred bucks, you can buy thousands of reviews. That's why we have so many good I, reviews. I guess- I guess if okay, I guess if the website was somehow like government led or government run or you know or, or I, what I like the idea is that just like you know you pay through Uber and you have to pay and then it sends you the ability to do the review. Mm, yeah, I kind of like that idea that you'd pay on the system. And so I've paid on the system and then I get sent the ability to write the review until I've, until I've had that Uber ride and I've paid on the system and it's tracked that I've done it. I can't write a review on Uber. I can't go and write a fake review on Uber. Yeah. I think, uh, which is like, I like the I, idea I a lot. I, I, no, I like the idea a lot. I think there's like some real technical things that would have to be worked through in regards to that, like proof that you were a real customer. Sure. And of course there's the, there's the odd person that you and them don't gel. They don't do what you ask them to do. They're a bad client. They give you a bad review. Like that's of course going to happen, but you know, that's got to be part of the course. But I think that's really sure. good. If there was some way of like, mm, like governing it. Yeah. And I mean, man, you can move a billion dollars in Bitcoin, you know what yeah. I mean? Like via some kind of blockchain, you they can do that, right? Like you can have yeah. a, a way of certifying that you were a real customer and that a real transaction mm-hmm. actually took place between you and this person. Uh, for sure, there's a way to do that. I think it's a great idea. The way I see it is that it just it would just allow a for transparency, you know, to really bring cool story show me a dog to life a little bit, really, yeah. because you're saying I can see how many customers you've had, and I can see what you've done that's been signed off by the people who have given you that education. Yeah, my only and concern as education providers, you then have to. I don't know how, but there'd have to be some form of a credit. Like you'd have to become an education provider on that system, and so I guess you there'd be there'd be some something whereby someone would have to go through the courses that are available and say, yes, you, you are providing education of this merit. Yeah, I think my concern. That's a sticky bit, really. My concern is really the subjective nature of reviews. So the thing is, you know, you might get someone out who – I was talking about this recently with people. There's a big shortage of dog trainers in Australia, in Sydney anyway, that I'm aware of, of like in-home behaviour mod people that are good. So there's heaps of people doing it. There's no shortage of people that are putting their hand up to do it. But people who can come to your house and fix a complex issue, there's a big shortage of them. And the reason I know that is because I've got people who are like, when I say, oh, I can't do it, I've got like it's quite a big referral network that I send people to. And then four weeks later, they get back to me and say, none of those people are available, right? The, the people who are very often available, people who are new, now they might be on their way to being good or you know, maybe they never are going to be, who knows, but they're new and their books aren't full yet. And I think as well, it's the people who are happy to fill their books beyond what is probably reasonable as a trainer. Like as a trainer, especially if I'm dealing in complex aggression stuff, I can only handle probably four or five of those. That's too many in my brain to be keeping track yeah, of where the dogs are. And it's a 24 hour job because when people have a success with their dog, they're going to want to tell you. And when the dog blows up at someone, they're going to want to get advice immediately on the spot. And so if you're doing that in home behavior stuff where you're holding someone's hand through the rehabilitation of their dog, you're very limited in how many customers you can have. And it's one of the reasons why like it's a tricky business model because sort of ethically you can only charge those people so much. You can really cap yourself when making so much money so, so quickly, but what there are is people who are like, nah, I'll fix that in an hour. Like I can shut that dog down an yeah. hour. I, I, I could do that. Right. And it's true. They mm-hmm. can, they can shut that dog down an hour. And so I can do 10 of them a day. Right. Boom, boom, boom. Give me another 10 the next day. 
And then there's also people who are like, no, nah, we just throw food on the floor and like you, but you have to come back every week and we throw food on the floor together and we never make any progress. But the problem is. Yeah, I just give the dog a shit ton of meds and. Yeah, exactly. And right. We're, we're done. So Job the problem done. is some really terrible dog trainers across the full spectrum that you and I might look at and say, oh my God, we need to get you off the whole app. Like not only should you not be there, like this is, mm-hmm. this is a disaster, but they could get genuine, really good reviews by people who are, you know, buying what they're selling and who are just like, yeah. wow, you know, fix my dog. We threw the fucking choke chain on the floor in front of the dog and, and we did that 500 times and now the dog doesn't do the thing anymore. Uh, or like this is, you know, m- my dog now is a zombie. He walks around totally medicated out of his brain and all he ever did was bark at the door when people knocked, right? So yeah. like there are owners that don't need to be shown you know, they have no idea what's going on with their dog, that the tiniest little bit of knowledge they're amazed by and, and will give this amazing positive review. So I think that's a trick. Like, it's tricky. It's a really difficult. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But even if you were to pull the reviews off that system, then you'd still have a transparent system that showed what that person had done and how long that person had done it for. Yeah. So you'd still end up with, you know, this is Pat Stewart's registration number. This is what he's done. This is how many years he's been doing it for. So these are his points for this, this, and this. And you can see if someone's been doing it for 20 years, but they haven't had any CPD for the last 10 of those years, you can go, mm, not sure. You know, at least then there's some kind of transparency. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think-, think at the moment there are so many people that lie about what they've done and yeah. so many people who are either overqualified and underskilled or who are very skilled, very effective, but not ethical because they don't understand the complexities of what they're working with. You know what I reckon should happen? I fought this with Pat a while ago in very early episodes when he talked about the proof is out there on the field. Maybe somebody needs to do a pet dog market trial. Well, the thing is. <laughs> it's rally, isn't it? Well, there's so many of them that, that people just don't want to do them. GRC is very closely attributed to that. The SR is probably, in my mind, is probably the closest to what any pet dog marketing trainer could do. And then, you know, like they're out there, they're exposed. And then if they get the titles time and time again, or their clients are getting titles, then you could say, well, something's going right here because these people keep pulling their sales out of their ass. Yep. I, I'm okay, with so you. Let's, let's, let's say, let's say the SR is the, your minimum benchmark for practical. So that seems sensible. To me, if my students were to go and do that, I'd be like, yeah, okay, you can, you can handle a dog. You can train, you know, you know what you're doing enough mm. to train a dog. What would be the minimum benchmark for the, the knowledge stuff? Well, I think a panel of people could probably come together and devise that and say, this is fair and reasonable. The Cert 3, the work that the guys do in the Cert 3 is is actually quite complex. There's a fair degree of work that comes out of that at the end that you would arguably say they have really done some hard yards on learning theory. The way to do that, to put the arguments at rest, would be to have a panel of people with different experiences that are not argumentative, that they're based on, you know, a conclusion and being reasonable and putting something together that's competency-based. And then you could all look at it together and say, well, I think that's reasonable as a bare minimum. Something like that could be devised and you could say, well, the SR is the practical and here is the agreed group consensus of the bare minimum as an academic level. That's what I'd think. So I think the main problem with that model is that most of the evidence would suggest that doing an examination based, so anything where you're having a test or an exam, isn't very reliable for more than half of the population in testing proficiencies. Mm. 
that's the tricky thing because if you're shit at exams, if you've got a shit memory or Nando would do fine on that practical test, but if there's any kind of exam-based stuff on the knowledge, he's going to go, now. I'm not fucking touching that with a bar. He left school at 15. He doesn't, he's not interested in that. I hear what you're saying, but even when we're doing, let's say, for example, a Cert 3, because I'm a, mm-hmm. I am a, um, a certified instructor, I've got the qualifications myself to teach students. Again, it's a government accredited course. There are more than one ways to gain competency. There's different ways that people can present. Like I have students that have like a impairment and they can't. They're neurodivergent. And so exactly. They, they bring in information in different ways. Right. That isn't the same as the way that you've been set up to teach it to the majority. Exactly. So as an instructor for equity and fairness, I have to think about these sort of things and say, okay, if you're not able to show me this way, like you couldn't get up and write it down or you couldn't do it in front of a group of people, how could you communicate it to me so I can understand that you could prove to me that you know this knowledge? So there are variations of how students will present to me. And some of them surprise you, like they couldn't write it down on a bit of paper, but they can go and do a a whole presentation where they can go and verbally show it to you and walk through the whole thing. And you go, yep, you definitely know it. Like it's in your head, you know how to do it. Mm. So I understand that there are some people who are dyslexic. Yeah. So there are people who are dyslexic. dyslexic. Yeah. Well, there are, I I mean, I'm mildly dyslexic. There are times where I'll start reading and I can start to see shimmering in the page. I mean, I have to stop and I have to start again because I'll lose pace. My mind is thinking ahead all the time. Um, It's a weird phenomenon, but it happens, but it hasn't prevented me from reading. It hasn't prevented me from learning. It slows me down in it. But there are times where it's frustrating and it's annoying. I guess my point with all this rambling is basically saying that I think that students should be allowed several ways to communicate. I either do understand this or I don't understand this. But what about the dog training element of it? So my friend, Bryony, who's a like fucking wicked trainer, she gets the worst nerves on trial fields than you've ever seen. Like she's shaking like a leaf. Like, and I'm like, I'm watching her. I could watch her handle her dog one day and she'd just be like, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. The next day she's in front of people and she's, you know, dropping toys and she's worried. And and, and she's had to fight that really hard. But you you do get individuals who are, who find, who get so nervous. Yeah. In, like, especially on those test conditions. And so, for me, I really struggle with working out, like I really struggle with the idea that there should be one assessment, like an assessment for those things. I feel like your experiences and your practical should somehow get you weight yeah. to what you're doing rather than being tested. I well, think trade schools solve all this problem. Like if we looked at dog training yeah. more as a trade. So before I joined the army, I was an apprentice stonemason for 12 months. And so I worked oh, on, cool. yeah, I work on building sites like four days a week and then you go to try, you go to school one day a week and it's the same with electricians. It's the same, like it's the little variances all over the place. Apprenticeship. But yeah, mm. apprenticeship. So you, yeah. you go like I'm on the tools, fucking up, making mistakes, being guided, like actually working up cheap labor for the employer during that time. I was an indentured apprentice, which means like you can't even be fired. You could be the biggest <laughs> fuck up on the planet and the boss can't fire you. Of course there are, practical things and you you go to there and my boss was really good he intended to trade me i, I didn't finish the apprenticeship because i joined the army but he was like you will only do two years with me like you will go to this other company who's a friend of mine because it's a different skill set we did a lot of mm-hmm. like construction and then there's more like in stone mason they call it a banker mason like the carving sort of stuff which we didn't do a lot of so it's like you're only doing two years with me and then you're going to my friend's company to do two years with him and then you're coming back to me but i want you to get that skill set from him and i think like a model like that would be fantastic in dog training and i 
think great. we could totally build that, it, like not internationally, I don't think, but sort of at a local level because you've got the dogs, right? So like one of the things you said is, is surrendering is on the rise, dog bites are on the rise, ownership is on the rise, like a government facility that is set up to train people and then we have these stooge dogs, right, who are like, this is your job, dog, like you're here to be mm-hmm. trained and these people are going to train you and they're going to make mistakes, but it's better than living in a kennel for the rest of your life doing nothing and you're going to be for rehomed sure. and we're going to have instructors there that train these people, move them out and they're going to go, there's a theory day and then there's practical days and you could round out people. The issue with that, and and I think it would be a great model, is the ideologues who would corrupt it, right? So like my concern about it is exactly as you said earlier, Joe, and it's like how how I want to swing back around to is the idea that someone gets in there and changes the model and says, we're not using punishment here, right? Or we're not teaching Mm -hmm. about it. And, you know, we're Mm -hmm. not even talking about it. That becomes an issue then. And I think- it's totally fine. Like people can train dogs however they want so long as they're effective. But I think in any school that has it like that, it you should be required to demonstrate an understanding of the full spectrum and all the tools that could be used in everything. And you don't have to use them. There's plenty of ways, like it's 2022 for fuck's sake. We can come up with a simulator on how to use an e-collar. Like that's one of the things that I cannot believe doesn't exist, sure. that I can't get into the metaverse and train a dog in the metaverse. Like that drives me mm-hmm. insane that someone hasn't figured that out because why? We like, talk about this all the time. Yeah. What's one of the things like when a lot of people who say, oh, I don't have an issue with that tool. I just don't want to make mistakes on it. I don't want some dog to have to be my stooge as I learn to do it. Like we can Mm. virtually create a dog. Like, I don't know why someone hasn't done that. I guess there's no market for it, but if it were government funded, I think that's a thing. And certainly not this specifically, but it is something I've thought about a lot in Australia in the working dog community is we have all these issues in Australia with getting working dogs in and selling them to police and military and all this kind of stuff. And there's all these trickling budgets and it costs a fortune that we waste so much money on it for $30 million. I could fix the working dog problem in Australia permanently. And I could make Australia actually within 10 years, I could make Australia the hub of high quality working dogs in the world. And it would cost $30 million. And that's a crazy amount of money, $30 million. It's nothing. It's fucking nothing in the, in the scope of government spending. $30 million doesn't get an eyelid bat. Right. Mm. Uh, And the the Mm -hmm. problems you could solve. And it would be the same with this. I think that it would be the same with training people. You could set up the set, you could build the facilities, get the dogs in, train, like get the people and be churning them out in a way that then makes money in the future. Like not only do you solve the problem, no more money has to be spent in the future. Well, now we're bringing in money because we're now bringing in foreign students and we're educating them in our system because we've got it all set up. <sighs> only took an hour well, for me to form an also, opinion, but I got one now. <laughs> I think I think you could also use the existing system in a better way in order to do a proper tr- apprenticeship scheme, just exactly the same as what you're talking about with the tradies. So, you know, you get paid a small amount of money to take on your apprenticeship an apprenticeship person, they shadow you, you begin to teach them your ways over a certain period of time. Once a week, they go to an existing university to learn that theory stuff. And then after they've been with you for a certain set amount of time, they go to the next person and they have to have done that out in the field to become a pet dog trainer. And I guess you would have the same. But then the, the other thing that I came across when I was looking at all this was I started listing out the different types of dog trainer there are. And often when we look at these things, we're just thinking about, we're mainly thinking about pet dog trainers. Sometimes we'll go, oh, and there's working dog trainers too. But then we forget about assistance dog trainers or people who specifically do rehab and rescue, mm-hmm. or like, like there are so many different types. Or Jilly down the road, who's got a grade five agility and goes once wants to teach your class once a week on a Saturday. Yeah. You know, like does she have to go through the whole system in order to become certified? Because if you do, you're going to knock out all those Jillies who are actually really great teachers. Yeah. 
there's so many different people in it, but I do think something needs to be done because at the moment what I'm seeing is that we're having, we've got an industry and there are some very proficient practitioners, but when I'm being asked for referrals constantly, I struggle to find them. When I'm listening to both of you speaking on this, it kind of brings to mind in a way the way that the Noseworks community really built and established their empire because they really have a good training system. They train their people well and their people are very loyal to the brand as well. Like they stay within the confines of it. And and I'm sure there's going to be someone out there who says, oh, well, I did this and it didn't work out. You'll always find red herring out there. There's always somebody who will say it didn't work for me. But generally speaking, when you look at the structure and system that they've worked and how they've networked that out amongst the world, when you speak to the people around the world who have done the, the Noseworks course, they're all talking the same language. They're all saying the same thing. They're all producing really good attributes amongst people. Because I've looked at it and I've thought, well, this person is saying primarily what this person is saying, you saying what this person is saying. I think they found the secret source that works really well with them and they found that something that they've produced congruency in. I think it's easier to do that when you're just teaching someone how to make a burger. It's much harder when you're teach- you need to teach them about the whole menu. Do you know what I mean? Like you can standardize how to, t- like McDonald's have done it perfectly, haven't they? You can standardize. This is your set menu. I'm going to teach you how to do these things. But I think it's much more difficult when you're saying, but I need to teach you about every aspect of food and the proteins and the, what builds that food and how, because when there's a problem with this food, you're the one who's going to need to break that open and work out what's gone wrong with the ingredients. And to that much, like, much bigger level, it's like small versus big businesses and stuff. You know, it's, it's harder the more you're having to teach. I guess that's the reason why levels exist. And mm-hmm. and that answers the question to that is that there are going to be certain people who are on level one, others who are on level two, three, four, and however many levels exist. You've got to find a start and end to it in order to solve yeah. the problem because there's always problems, but there's always solutions to those problems as well. Pat brought up a solution to fixing the working dog industry, but the problem is mm-hmm. it's going to take a shit ton of money. Who's going to come up with that money? So there is a solution there, but the big red herring that exists there is who just hands over $30 million to trust him and say, well, okay, I'm going to trust you to do this and produce the goods for me. Not saying that he wouldn't. I've known Pat for many years now. He's an ethical person, but that exists in a lot of areas where people are too scared to start because they're going, how do I trust this person to be able to produce this? Well, it has to start somewhere. Yeah. There has to be a beginning to all of this. But in governments, that's that's how the way government works. Like you've been to the facility yeah. out of the army. Mm. That's $400 million, mate. Yep. It's because they said we need a domestic counterterrorism force and the people in charge of that said to do that, it's going to cost you $400 million and you got to build this facility. This yep. is what it's going to cost. And they built it. And mm. so it's the same when, like if someone got together and said, there is a lack of dogs that bite in this country effectively and the police are having a hard time filling it. There's people who could say, oh, th- that's just a money problem. It, mm. we, we can absolutely, like if it's managed correctly, you put someone in place, that's governments, that's what they do. I think that we've you know, probably established that it's a complex, unsolvable problem, especially since we're dealing internationally and how to actually do it. But my question for you, Joe Rosie, and for all of us, I suppose, is someone comes to you and they say, I have no skill set. I'm starting out. I want to become a dog trainer and I will not charge money until you give me the tick in the box to do so. What do you tell mm-hmm. them to do? I would start them on practical mechanics of training dogs is what I'd start them on. I'd put them through our 30-day course where they're literally just learning the mechanics of luring, how to lure, how to do all of that kind of stuff. 
so that they have a practical understanding of how to move the dog from A to B and how to produce how to produce reliable behavior on cue. That's where I'd start them on. I'd want them to be proficient in being able to produce behavior reliably. And then in terms of the knowledge, it depends on how far they wanted to go. If we're talking about pet dog training and we're not talking about behavior problems, because I think for me, there's definitely a big line there where you do need to understand in, in greater depth what a dog is and stuff. If you're starting to work with abnormal behavior or behavior that's presenting in a you know, abnormal frequency or intensity. Then I think what I would do, so I've thought about this quite a lot. I think what I would do is I'd start them with one breed and I'd say, what breed of dog do you want to work with first? Let's think of a popular one because it's going to make sense. Let's, I don't know, let's choose a cockapoo for argument's sake. Let's find you a foster cockapoo. We're going to, I'm going to throw some foster cockapoos at you at home and you're going to be training them. And I'm going to start you on easy, loose lead walking recall cases with cockapoos. And then once you're proficient in cockapoos, we'll, we'll change. Let's get a sight hound. When you start fostering sight hounds now, and we're going to do the same behaviors in sight hounds. And now, okay, let's get a shepherd in. Let's chuck a shepherd into the mix. See how you do with a shepherd. I'd move them through the breed groups, I think, because I think that training the different breed groups can be so different. And I think that you can get people who are brilliant at training certain breeds. And then if it came to behavior, I would start them on separation anxiety cases, shadowing, and then I'd, event, I'd, I'd move them up through the more complex behavior cases through shadowing. And as soon as they became proficient in separation anxiety, I'd say, okay, you can now go and charge for separation anxiety cases and so on and so forth. I think in terms of tool use, et cetera, I do want all of my trainers to have a full understanding of everything that's available to them, everything on the menu, 100%. I don't think it's right that trainers come out it's fine for them to come out and start charging with, with what they're doing if they're training pet dogs, you know, recall and lead walking. But eventually, if they're going to become a decent proficient trainer, they need to understand everything that's available to them and make their own ethical choices. And so for me personally, I would want to start them with the things that require the most patience and that can do the least amount of damage. So I'd start them on food and clickers, et cetera, et cetera. And then I'd want to move them up and educate them and get them practically able to understand and use the things that require less patience and have more quick effectivity as they go. And then the things that are more easy to do damage with such as tools at the end. What about you guys? Glenn? It's a no brainer for me because I can put them straight onto NDTF. I can just say, do this course. It's a grounding level course for you, especially if they're in New South Wales, because they're going to come and do the practical with me and I can watch them. You know, I get two one week sessions with them where they do like a full eight days with me. Then they go away, they go and practice their skills. They go and do some videos. Then they come back and they present those videos. And then they do another eight day course where we certify them at the end, only for the practical. They've still got to do their academia in between that. But for me, I get to see everything in between that. That's cheating. Well, it, I could put them all on my, beha- oh, okay, I'll put them all on my behavior course. Like I said, <laughs> to start somebody off from ground zero that knows absolutely nothing because a lot of the people that are on that course are people who have never really had anything to do with dog training at all. We have everybody from experienced dog handlers in government agencies to mums and dads who have only owned a pet and had no experience at all. And still at the end of it, we produce some competent people out of it. People who can go out and start a business if they want because they actually learn how to do a little bit of business management in the course as well. It's a Cert 3. It's a basic level. It's not designed as we stipulate clearly, and I try and make this as profound as possible. It's not supposed to make them the all-encumbering guru of training 
All it is is to give them a starting base, you know, a springboard to launch from to say, I know some things now. And now what I also know is that I can look for people in the industry that I can network with to improve my knowledge from here. The encouragement is always given to them because we always say this is just the tip of the iceberg. You're now in a room of a hundred doors and there's a lot of doors that lead to opportunities out there, but you've got to make some smart choices from this point on. And that's entirely up to them where they go from there. In an earlier episode, and I was talking to Pat about this a while ago, I had somebody come up to me and say, oh, I met one of your NDTF students and they weren't all that. And I said to him, what a stupid thing to say, because that's based on an individual. That's not based on a group of hardworking people. And I said, because I know other people who are very successful business people now because they've done the NDTF course. It's not because of that. It's because they've used their own proficiency to go out and seek the advice and seek mentoring with other people in the industry to go out to seminars, to read books, to look at things that they've seen on YouTube, to go off and do online courses, which they've done. And they've turned themselves into a very experienced model of somebody who's very proficient at training dogs because they're hungry. There is possibly millions of people like that around the world who have done similar courses and had similar experiences. So that old chestnut of people coming up to you in the street and saying, oh, you know, I've met the person who's done, you know, they might have done a course with Pat and not done well with it or not understood the concept of Napopo. That's not his fault. That's their fault. The one thing you can't teach is work ethic. Exactly. And that's the most frustrating thing, isn't it? You can't teach someone to have work ethic. You can't teach them the motivation to get up and have a cold shower and die outside and eat healthy food and and just live your life and grab hold of all the opportunities and train your dog. And You can't teach that bit. And I think a lot of people actually come and they want you to teach them that bit. They're like, they're like, I want to do that. I want to do what everyone else is doing. I can't get it. And you're you're like, I can't give you that. I can give you knowledge, I can give you skills, I can give you the capability to feel good about what you're doing. I can't give you that. Well, That's something you can only give yourself. I enrolled in the course that you and Nando and Dean. Yeah, so I enrolled in that course and I'm, you know, probably about a third of the way through it. And the information in there is great. I'd highly recommend it to anybody. But if I don't get that, is that a reflection on you, Dean and Nando, or is that a problem with me? You can only teach the information, can't you? It's not. Exactly. Like most people that are enrolled in the course that I've spoken to have all the same sort of feelings about it and are achieving the same sort of outcomes. So everything that's available out there, it's outcomes based. As I've said to the people that work for me, if we have a means average and a large means average of students who don't get this, this is our fault. We've done something wrong. There was a time where there was a conflicting statement that we were saying between us and what was written in the manuals. And it was our fault. And the students at the end of it were parrot fashion saying what we told them to say, but it wasn't right in the manual. And I had to sit with the students and correct them and saying, I apologize. We got this wrong. You know, this is on us. We're in between developing the new standard. We got confused about it and we've delivered the wrong one. The right thing to do is to do it like this. So we corrected it and fixed the problem, but we had to realize we created the issue. This is on us. But when the information is good and you've got like 90% of the students all saying the same thing and delivering the same processes and practically being able to demonstrate it, then you can say, well, what's been delivered is proficient. It's good material because students are actually able to pass it on and and show examples of that, real world examples of it, of how it works. So that's probably how I look at any course or any 
processes that people are putting out there for people to learn by is what is the means average of the people who are coming out of the other end of this? When they go through the funneling system, what are you producing on the other side? Are they replicant of the material that you're trying to deliver? Like, do they look like they're showing a clear understanding of how to pragmatically doing that? And if you test them academically and say to them, if I was to ask you the difference between operant conditioning and Pavlovian conditioning, what are they? And they were able to give you a... Concise and relatable example. Yes. If they were able to do that, then you would say to them, the material's there. Any schooling or any university, that's the gradient system that they go on, is to basically look at the means average of the students, even the ones that are struggling a little bit, and to say, out of the other end of this, we're still producing goods. It's hard, isn't it, as well, though? Because, I mean, I know certainly, and I'm not going to mention names because I get in trouble. But um I know some courses that don't teach the information correctly. Mm. And that's a struggle because who is checking that what you're teaching is correct? Like that was a real big one for us when we designed the behavior bible. Like we've we made sure that when we did the genetics first we got that we got our Harvard geneticist to go through all of it with a fine tooth comb before we did it from Darwin's dogs and you know we got uh, like Clive Wind go through the cognition verse and all that. And it's amazing how many bits were picked up. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, that's not how I was taught that. And they were like, yeah, everyone gets taught that bit incorrectly, but actually it's this. It's made me reflect as well on a lot of my education. And I'm like, so many people don't know what they're teaching is wrong. So Mm. what they're teaching, they're assuming is right. And then the students go and learn it right. And then as you say, they become a mirror of that and they become verbatim. I think teaching scientific literacy is one of the best skills that we can teach people, which is like to be critical and to question and to be curious and to hear a bit of information and go instead of mirroring that, instead of coming back and repeating that verbatim, I'm going to go and test it myself and think about it myself and, and work it through and work out whether or not I believe that to be the fact. I think as good teachers, that's got to be that's got to be our biggest goal. My favourite thing in the world is when people, one of our students, message me and they go, "You said this thing, but I've been thinking about it." And blah 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 blah. I'm like, "Ah, oh, yes, that's what I want. I want you to be hungry to pull apart the knowledge that even we're giving you and start really thinking about it." I agree with that. There's two things to take away from that. Is number one is peer reviewing any subject matter. I believe that that's es- essence to good outcomes. And I also believe that your students should never be fearful of questioning you ever. Yeah, for sure. For sure. If you're producing students that are fearful to question you out of respect or that they feel that they're going to be ridiculed, then you're not a good teacher. Mm. For sure. I feel like we've covered it all, guys. We've really talked a lot about qualifications, where to get them, how to get them what people should have, our thoughts, our biases, yeah, <laughs> all of what the they above. Might mean, what they might not mean. <laughs> but I think what we sort of come to is it's tricky. It's complex. I think everybody has a different idea on what a dog trainer is. I think there's people probably even listening to us that are like, you three dickheads don't know anything about dog training because dog training to me is some peculiar abstract thing that the three of us collectively know nothing about. So like, it's tricky, man. I think the crux of it is If you're going out there and you're charging money for something, you need to feel confident that you're going to be able to produce the results in a way that is fair for the dog and in a way that is fair for the owner and in a way that is achievable if you're giving work back to the owner. Mm. I think if you're doing those things and if you have a level of education or practice or hopefully education and practice that you're able to do those things, then relax and any Legal regulation should ensure that those people are brought in with open arms. If this wasn't tricky and complex, 
the three of us wouldn't be talking about it right now and people around the world wouldn't be wouldn't be listening. Wouldn't be listening. Yeah, that's true. For mm. sure. Speaking of dog training education, where can people get some of that, hey. Joe Rosie? People can get some of that at canine where we do loads of different courses, right from the start of courses. The best one to start with would be the 30 days of canine science, which runs you through 30 days of different stuff that you can do with your dog to get really good practical mechanical skills and learn to produce reliable behavior all the way through to our three year course, which is the behavior Bible, which is the one that Glenn was talking about earlier and is a degree equivalent in terms of depth. Uh, and runs you through year one, which is the seven lenses, which goes into the theory in absolute masses and masses and masses of depth to year two, which is much more about the business of dog training and much more about how to you know, assess dogs and take histories and how to read histories and how to analyze vet histories and all that kind of jazz all the way through to year three, which is all about behavior modification and actually getting out there and how to do it in the various different forms and touch on all the different ways in the toolbox, including the ways that we don't practically do ourselves. Wow. I didn't realize it was that in depth. Three years. Holy shit. I haven't finished it. I'm only very, very small way through it. It's been filmed well. They've put a lot of money and a lot of effort into the production of it. It's actually quite good. It's very impressive. Nice. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for doing it. It's always lovely chatting to you boys. Likewise. Sure. I'll see you on Clubhouse. Yeah, no doubt. We'll be in there (laughs) listening to people argue with each other over dumb shit. Sure. Oh, it's so heated. I love it. I love it. And good luck this weekend. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, well, by the time this is out, it's all over. So I either passed or failed. I hope you've passed, but if not, then well done for getting on the field. Yeah, anyway. thank you. All right. Hey, that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from and then go to another one you don't even download us from and do it there too. Mm. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is Patreon. A couple bucks a month gets you some really cool information in there, live streams, all that kind of jazz. You can give dollars a month if you wanted to. Like if you're that kind of person. We won't complain. You could imagine if you did, right? How good would that be? <laughs> Jesus. Pat's trying to work himself up to $30 million so he can solve the solve this working dog, solve problem. The working dog problem. Man, I got it mapped out. I got the whole plan. I just want a whisper room. I'd just be happy with a whisper room. Yeah, right? we'll get one of those for $30 million. My, I, my standards aren't that high. Oh, one of my kennels will have a whisper room in it. Cool. Okay. Buy T-shirts. Fucking hell. They're awesome. Get into spring and get yourself a Canon Paradigm T-shirt. Some of the coolest merch, frankly, that I've ever seen. Cool story. Show me your dog. Yeah, you get that one. Yep. In many and various forms. Tapestries. What house shouldn't have a tapestry? Yeah, wall tapestry, of course. Absolutely. If you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is jump into our Facebook group. I just realized there's nearly 8,000 people in there. That's outrageous. And we are hitting the waves on Instagram at the moment. We're nearly 9,000 people. Oh, my God. Yeah. We're so Instagram famous. We're Instagram famous. Have you thought about shaking your ass on there? Would that, do you think I'm, that I'm, would- I'm trying to get people not... Get the <laughs> <laughs> all right, so follow us on all the social medias and shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye.